The Bank of Canada is going to have to raise rates by more than we think and keep them higher for longer than we think to slay the inflation dragon, that basically inflation will force central banks to keep rates higher for longer. If that's true, it is reasonable, I think, to conclude that the amount of pain that it will take to bring inflation back down will slow the economy to a degree that when inflation is finally vanquished or comes down to a level that is satisfactory to our central bankers, that then we need a fair amount of cuts. We're not talking about a few, we're talking about many. That's an aggressive bet right now. It's hard for people to pay more for a variable, especially when it looks like it could go up another quarter point, worst case, maybe another half a percent. I'm not doing a lot of variable anymore. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today's show, I have Dave LaRock. Dave has a fantastic blog, if you haven't checked it out, called integratedmortgageplanners.com and very well-researched and well-written articles. And I like to have Dave on periodically just to see what he's noticing in the interest rates as well as housing prices. I'll jump into what I picked up from my conversations with Dave. We talk about a little bit of housing price crash. Dave talks about his expectations for that. We talk about changes to the stress test as well as fixed or variable. What's the right call today and really fun conversation. Also, I have Kevin Kennedy from KDK Financial. They specialize in auto loans and we talk about re-amortizing auto loans. Before we get into this episode, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform. Very easy for borrowers to use. It's got some intelligent features like it automatically knows what documents that the person is going to need based on the application. It's got smart submission notes. So when you go to hit submit, it pulls key data from the app into the notes to make it easier for your underwriter and integrates with Lender Spotlight, which is the best tool for searching rates and guidelines. You can check them out at lendescom Finmo and check out this uh, episode with Dave. Hey, thanks for joining me, Dave. I love having you on every quarter just to see what's Dave thinking and talking about. So, hey, thanks for coming to chat with me. Happy to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me back. I was just creeping on your blog. And if you guys are mortgage brokers and you want to read some great content, I encourage you to go check out Dave's blog. How often do you put a content on there? Every Monday, Monday morning update. Right. And uh, so we've got some topics we're going to cover. One of them is going to be predictions for the Bank of Canada meeting. Will the Bank of Canada pivot? House prices, are they going to crash? Any changes to the stress test, fixed or variable? And then AI's impact on brokering. And then if you guys have questions, put them in the chat and we'll cover them. But maybe we'll just jump right into it, Dave, and just tell me, so what are your predictions for this next Bank of Canada meeting? Is it going to be a hike? Is it going to be a flat? And what's your reasoning for that? You know, Scott, it's hard to say. I would have said that they're probably going to pause. The next meeting, they include their monetary policy report, which they issue once a quarter. And that report gives a really detailed analysis of the bank's thinking. So it would be a good time for them to announce that they're going to pause. A pivot, at least my understanding of the definition of the word pivot, as far as central banks go, is that's when they start cutting. I certainly don't think they're going to pivot. I think they might well pause. And um, I would have bet on that before we found out that our economy added 104,000 new jobs uh, last month, which was confirmed last week. So with the strong jobs report, I'd say it's a coin toss. If I had to pick now after that, I'd say maybe a quarter point. I think maybe they go up another quarter point. Okay. On the jobs report, do you know where were the jobs and were these full-time, part-time? Like, Because obviously they can make it. I mean, they know what they're looking at, but tell me about how that looks. Well, let's keep it high level. Number one, we added 104,000 new jobs, which is a huge jobs month for Canada. 
you know, we clip along at about eight or 10 and we've been losing jobs on balance in the last six months. But the big concern isn't even the number of jobs being added. It's that our wage growth is still above 5%. Because if you're the bank account and you want to bring inflation down, it's hard to see it dropping much below the rate of our wage growth, which is has averaged over 5% for the past seven months. So we can get down from 8% to 5% pretty quickly. And I think we'll see that happen. But getting down from five lower, getting anywhere near two is going to be much tougher sledding if wages are still growing by 5% plus, because wage costs are pervasive throughout the economy. Um, right. So, so I think the combination of the jobs report showing lots of new jobs created, meaning there's still lots of demand from employers. Because remember, right now in Canada, we have more demand for jobs than we have a supply of labor. So if wage growth is going to start moderating, it'll be because some of those job postings go away. And so ultimately, businesses will cancel job postings, and then supply demand will be more in balance. But we actually need to bring wages down or bring wage growth down. We need to see more supply of labor than demand for labor. So we have to go from here for demand for labor underneath supply for labor to see wages start to fall. And, you know, that's going to take time. It's going to be a real challenge. And again, the Canadian economy has been much more resilient than we would have expected. For people in the mortgage business, now that we've had to hike rates, we're the leading edge, right? We're the most sensitive part of the economy mm -hmm. really from an interest rate perspective. So we really want to get the pain over with. Bring on the pain. Let's get the pain over with. And then we can cut rates and get the market going again. It takes up to 18 to 24 months for the first rate hike to kick in. The first rate hike was in March of last year. So the real bite of all these rate hikes isn't going to start being evident until 2024. And if the Canadian economy proves to be more resilient as it has been, that means we could need even more rate hikes to bring inflation down. So we're at the leading edge. We're feeling it more than most of the rest of the economy. And from our perspective, we don't want to see resilience in the economy right now. We want to see evidence of pain because that pain is going to get us through to the other side. 104,000 new jobs says the economy is still chugging along. Employers are confident enough to hire that many people. It feeds into wage growth. Wage growth is still 5% plus. And if we're in the current rate environment until we get to 2% inflation, this is all bad news. And as I wrote in my most recent post last year and the year before, Bad news for the economy was good news for mortgages and for interest rates because it meant that the central banks were going to cut rates. Or now good news order. is bad. Good yeah, is bad it, and bad is good. Like, right. It used yeah. to be that bad news was good because it meant we were going to keep low rates around for longer. But now it's flipped. And now good news is bad because good news means that we're going to need higher rates. It's going to take longer for rate cuts to materialize. And basically, we're going to be stuck in the current housing malaise for longer. So we're in the bizarro. So, okay, but I have a question on that. So basically, it's obviously if you have lots of job growth, you're going to have more competition for those people, which is going to increase employers are going to have to pay more to attract them. Makes sense. But that's not going to help with inflation. I read a stat recently. It was in the New York Post. And it said that there's 7 million males between 25 and 34 choosing not to work or not to look for work. Like, is that a Canadian thing, too? I think it's just an American anomaly. Or have you heard about that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's no question, certainly in Canada and the U.S., the participation rate is below its long-term average, and that's cause for concern. The participation rate is basically the percentage of working age Canadians or Americans who are actively engaged with the economy. And that means they're either working or they're actively looking for work. And the participation rate 
fell during the pandemic and has recovered somewhat, but not fully. So that's a concern for sure, Scott. I haven't read that stat or something like that in Canada. Usually Canada and the U.S. are similar, but that might be a U.S. thing. U.S. thing. I'll send you the link to it after and you can check it out just as an interest. Yeah. But I was just curious, but it seems like we just can't seem to find enough labor. We've got a major shortage of labor, even in the midst of this rising cost environment, even in the midst of more money coming out of your pocket through higher rates and stuff. So now my next question is on the pivot. So the idea of a pivot, Sorry, maybe Scott, what that is. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I just want to make two more points on labor. Number one, we've got record levels of retirement now because baby boomers mm. are just starting to retire. And the amount of baby boomers who are retiring is going to go up over the next several years. And that is going to be a long-term trend. So we've got some structural yeah, we're losing we're losing people on the back end there so then we're losing some of the labor force right right if we have a lot of working age males who are out of the labor force now that's a problem that ultimately the economy should be able to fix over time retirements are a structural issue that isn't really fixable debatable it can tweak a little but yeah you know what you need to do you need to kick all those 25 year olds out of your basement and make them go so they have to go to work i'm just kidding i don't know if that's the reason they're you know not engaging in the employment but they can't yeah. all be influenced they can't all be influencers everybody can't be an influencer because then it's like it doesn't make sense but um, yeah and, you know. and one more point on wages scott you know everybody the central bankers and the policymakers are saying we need wages to come down to bring inflation under control and workers would say well wait a second yeah, my wages are growing with 5%, but when inflation is 6.8%, my purchasing power is still shrinking. I'm worse off all throughout this inflation spike, despite the fact that my wages are growing by 5%, because inflation is growing faster, so my purchasing power is shrinking. And insofar right. as record number of retirees gives workers more leverage, so far as the workers aren't being greedy, they're not asking for a bigger piece of the pie, they're asking for the piece that they own to not shrink anymore or to recover the amount that it shrunk by, it really does seem like this labor situation is very sticky in terms of rising wages. And that's why I think, and I've been writing in my posts, why I think inflation is going to take longer to come down than all of us hope and that many forecast. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So on the pivot, the idea of a pivot, so maybe just explain what that means. It used to be a language only used in startups when they were rejigging their business, but now it's moved over. I've never heard it used in you know, this type of terms before. So maybe explain what it is. And if you think we will see a pivot of the Bank of Canada's policy in 2023. Well, a pivot, of course, is really just a change of direction. And I guess, to me, a change of direction in the central bank's policy rate is it stops going up, and then it goes down. But I guess a pause is a change of direction, because instead of going like this, you're like this, and then you go like that. So maybe we'll have two pivots. But the bottom line is, people are wondering when the Bank of Canada will be done, when the pain will be over for variable rate borrowers and the bank will stop raising. And if we're not there, I think we're very close to being there. I think we'll probably get another quarter point at the end of the month and we might get one more in March, depending on what the data do. Interestingly, if we were talking next week and I knew what the Canadian CPI report was going to say, that might change my answer because if it's much softer, that means maybe the bank won't go by a quarter point. So I put that caveat in there, depending on what we see in the CPI report, which we're going to get very soon. The challenge, though, is, again, the central bank has loaded up all these rate hikes, but they have to wait another year to year and a half before they see what the effect of these rate hikes is. And right, right. that's what makes their job, I mean, their job's hard for lots of reasons, but that's what makes it really hard in this case is you got to load the gun and, and fire your bullets. And then you find out much later in the process. Did you hit your target? Did it hit the target like 18 months from now, right? right. Like, 
Right. Uh, okay, so that ties into my next question. So what do you think? Do you think that this is going to lead to a housing market crash that we're going to see like blood in the streets and people, you know, putting all their things on a donkey, if you could even find a donkey and <laughs> no. clanking pots on a donkey as they're walking down, you know, Main Street or what are your sort of predictions there? Yeah, no, I know. I don't think we're going to get a crash. I mean, it depends, I guess, what you define as a crash. In my most recent post, I made some predictions for the year with the caveat that, boy, they're harder. The predictions are always hard, and they're especially hard now with all the volatility in the environment. But it's fun to make them, and I provide the rationale for the five predictions that I made. And one of them was that I thought that from here, I would be surprised if house prices fell by more than another 10%. I don't see a crash. From a mortgage perspective, Scott, only half of the homes in Canada, roughly half, have mortgages on them. And of yep. the houses that have mortgages on them, about 70% of those are fixed rate mortgages. And those borrowers, when they come up for renewal, will have already passed the stress test when they got their original mortgage, showing they could afford rates for of about 5% where they are now. In addition mm -hmm. to that, they'll have five years of pay down on the mortgage. So they'll be renewing a lower mortgage balance. And I don't see that you know, being uh, market destabilizing. The 30% of the borrowers who have variable rate mortgages, the vast majority of those borrowers have fixed payment variables. And in those cases, a lot of them are hitting their trigger rates, but several lenders are offering flexibility when trigger rates are hit about not doing a full payment reset. So I think we have a very stable market. People look at what happened in the US and think it could happen here. The most important thing to always remember when you're comparing the US and Canadian mortgage markets is US lending is way more aggressive. Canadian lending is very conservative by US standards. When I worked in subprime lending and we were almost going to be, I worked at Exceed back then, and we were going to get bought by uh, Goldman and Lehman were fighting to buy us in the fall of 2008, right before the crash, if you can believe it. And they wow. looked at our subprime portfolio, and they said we were a prime lender in the US, um, right. just to give you some perspective. So I don't see a crash. The other thing, Scott, is Canadians pay their mortgages, and interest rates don't meaningfully impact default rates. Job losses do. And do I think we're going to have wide-scale job losses? Right now, when we've got way too much demand for, we have, yeah, we, we have a, a, yeah, we have a supply problem. Even if you lost your job, you could have a, may not be the exact same job, but you could certainly replace it pretty quick. Yeah, workers have leverage, five percent wage growth, tons of unfilled postings. Picture a pendulum for the pendulum to swing from that all the way to so many job losses that people are defaulting on mortgages. I just don't see it. The other thing is, there's no question that house prices got frothy and that interest rates are going to impact affordability. No question, but. And I know this is a point a lot of people make. We've got record levels of immigration. Those immigrants aren't going to buy $2 million houses, but they need somewhere to live. So they're going to put additional strain on the availability of housing for the general population, even if they are at the lower end of the housing spectrum in terms of what they're renting. That's going to still create demand up the chain. The other thing, Scott, is look at replacement cost. If you don't want to buy a house, well, what does it cost to build a house? If it costs less to build a house, prices should fall. But building costs are going through the roof. Right. Uh, not only are materials getting more expensive, the cost of labor is getting labor has gone up. Everything has gone up. Yeah, yeah. The fees you have to pay with the cities you want to build in are going up through the roof. So yes, prices could fall, but no, I don't think they'll crash. Right. Okay. And there'll be pockets of it. I'm sure there's going to be some people that are going to have to exit. And some people will get opportunity, buying opportunities potentially in those. And some people will have to exit. So do you think there's going to be any changes to the stress test? So now that it's so high, do you think that they're going to say, wait a second, we need to adjust? Or do you think they're going to hold the line of that? So that was another prediction I made in my blog. I predict they won't lower the stress test this year. I think that's a card they'll play in future because at some point housing will need some kind of stimulus. And if they eliminate the stress test, then that'll increase everyone's affordability by 20%. 
And of course, if they reduce it, they'll provide some affordability stimulus. But the challenge now, Scott, is it just wouldn't make any sense. If we eliminated or reduced the stress test and made houses more affordable, that would create more demand at a time when the central bank is really concerned about inflation and is cranking up interest rates in order to reduce demand. So it would be right. it would contradict all of the benefits. Yeah, yeah. It, wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense, really, from a monetary policy perspective to do that. Okay, but even more so, Scott, I said this the other day, I was talking to somebody and I said, be careful what you wish for. Right now, you get a mortgage at 5%, the stress test is at 7%. So let's say OSFI wakes up in a good mood and says, fine, we're getting rid of the stress test. What happens? Demand for housing goes through the roof. Inflation gets even higher. The Bank of Canada says, we got to keep cranking rates now. We got too much demand. Now, you don't have to qualify at a rate of 7% or at a, at a rate of 7%. Because you have a rate of 7%. Because <laughs> your mortgage rate is 7%. So now, instead of paying 5 and qualifying 7 now you're paying 7 So be careful what right. you wish for. Yeah, that's really good. And then, so, okay, given kind of what's going on with interest, so if you're a borrower today, are you taking fixed variable or are you looking at shorter term fixed? What's the strategy? And I know that it's, you're going to tell me it depends on the client, Scott, but I want a general, like just, you know, a borrower who could, you know, handle a variable rate mortgage right now, but they're like, do I want to take a variable or should I take a shorter term fixed or what would you recommend? So what would you do in a scenario like that? Sure. And the way I put it in my blogs is I say, which one's likely to save money over the next five years? Because then we're not really talking about what's appropriate for individual borrowers. For example, first-time buyers, even if it looks like variable rates might save money, knowing all I do about first-time buyers and having been one myself, I think the stability of a fixed payment when you're experiencing homeownership for the first time should tilt you in the direction of fixed more than the average experienced borrower. Back to your question, in terms of which I think will save money over the next five years, this is a really tough call, Scott, because right now, if you take a variable rate mortgage, you're paying more than you would pay for the fixed rate. And you're doing it on the bet that all these rate hikes are going to cause a recession and that the economy is going to slow by more than the soft landing uh, forecasts are predicting and that we're going to have to cut rates on the other side. Starting a five-year term today. I think there is still a case to be made that that will happen, that you'll pay more in the first year or two, but then rates will fall. And when they do, they'll fall by a significant amount because the economy will be on its back. In other words, the Bank of Canada is going to have to raise rates by more than we think and keep them higher for longer than we think to slay the inflation dragon, that basically inflation will force central banks to keep rates higher for longer. If that's true, it is reasonable, I think, to conclude that the amount of pain that it will take to bring inflation back down will slow the economy to a degree that when inflation is finally vanquished or comes down to a level that is satisfactory to our central bankers, that then we need a fair amount of cuts. We're not talking about a few, we're talking about many. That's an aggressive bet right now. It's hard for people to pay more for a variable especially when it looks like it could go up another quarter point, worst case, maybe another half a percent. I'm not doing a lot of variable anymore. People are looking at it and saying, you know what, if fixed rates are lower now. So would you go shorter term? Would you think a one or two year term might make more sense? Because then you have the option to like go back to the market and, you know, see what's available in two years or what do you well, think? The challenge there, Scott, is short term fixed rates are no bargain either. They're more expensive than variable rates right now because the yield curve is inverted. What the bond market is pricing in is a lot of inflation over the next year or two, and then they expect inflation to normalize and for rates to go back down. So if you go with a one or a two-year fixed rate, you're paying a premium as well 
So if I had to rank in terms of which the most aggressive calls would be right now, I think variable would be a very aggressive call. I wouldn't convince anybody to go variable right now. If they wanted to go variable, I wouldn't aggressively try to talk them out of it, but I would certainly give them both sides of the coin. And I wouldn't push anybody toward variable or nudge them in that direction. I think shorter term fixed rates, again, if you're willing to pay a premium and depending on who's got what's special on, there's a case to be made. But right now, five-year fixed rates are half a percent to three quarters of a percent cheaper than variable rates or short-term fixed rates. And if you're at a lender that doesn't hammer you with a penalty and two or three years from now, rates drop back down, then you can pay a penalty and refinance down to lower rates, especially if the Bank of Canada does have to keep rates higher for longer, the economy's on its back and rates really start to fall. What you don't want to do is take a five-year fixed rate from a major bank because their penalties are five or six times higher than what other lenders charge. And it's almost inconceivable that rates would fall to a level where the math would say that you're going to save money by breaking midterms. So to me, the worst decision of all is a five-year fixed rate with a high penalty. And I always stick my finger in the eye of the major banks when I mention major penalties, but some lenders have these do-on-sale-only clauses where there are much higher penalties Right. Uh, I would advise people away from those as well, because if you go fixed, you want the flexibility of a fair penalty. So a few years from now, if rates do drop back down, yes, there's a penalty, but a lot of times the math works out and you're better off to refinance. This happened at the start of COVID. Rates were in the low 3% range. They dropped to 2% and then down to one5 And I had a lot of borrowers in five-year fixed rate mortgages with fair penalties who refinanced down to those much lower rates penalty aside, still ended up saving money on a net basis. And best of all, got a new five-year rate in 2020 that isn't up until 2025. And those guys are really happy yeah, that yeah. their original mortgage contract had a fair penalty in it. The guys who I helped, uh, who went with the major banks, couldn't refinance. The math said it, it didn't make any sense. It would cost them a pile of money. Now they're sitting at three and a quarter. They got a year left and they've watched rates go north of five. So they definitely wish they had heeded my advice on the penalty in their mortgage contract back when we had the original conversation. And this is why you guys listening is that the terms of the mortgage matter a lot because this is flexibility that you lose depending on the you know choices that you make. And so, you know, thinking further ahead for your clients and being an advisor, it'd be great as a mortgage advisor to show somebody the math on that and say, this is what it looked like. And here's the reason why, you know, Mr. Customer, why we do it this way, why we think about these things, because I have clients that got stuck and it sucks and I can't actually help them, even though I, we saw what was coming, but they were tied in. So uh, yeah, Scott, there's a section in my blog called Borrower Beware, and it's all about terms and conditions in the mortgage contract. I think if you're giving people responsible professional mortgage advice, you got to make it about terms and conditions of the contract. You can't just focus on rate. Every client will start their conversation with you on rate because that's what they're trained to care about. But as informed professionals, it's our job to broaden the conversation and educate our consumers about things like the terms and conditions of the mortgage contract. And like I said, on my blog in the borrower beware section, there are several posts about key terms and conditions. And one in particular, the top post provides a comparison of the different fixed rate penalties that people get charged and shows that a penalty of 1600 bucks can be a penalty of 10,000 bucks for the same rate, depending on the terms and conditions in the mortgage contract. And it actually takes the clauses out of the commitments shows the wording and then gives you the formula and breaks it all down. So right. yeah, if you're in this business giving mortgage advice, you got to master that stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so this is a topic that we haven't talked about before, but I'm just interested. You're a smart, dude. What do you think AI's impact is going to be on the mortgage business in general? And what is your thoughts on that? It's pretty freaky. I don't know. I'm almost scared to go on the chat GPT site and tell them to do a Dave LaRock blog post on the latest employer report. It won't be as I'm telling you, it's not gonna it's not gonna compete. Like first I off, it's know. only yeah, yeah. It's only got data the 2021, the current model, but even still, it's not, you know, I think it's a great for editing tool or like a, a starting point. If you think, I think we're going to become more editors than creators. And we're going to look at this content and then figure out, okay, that's a good start. You know, okay, I'm actually going to clean it up a little bit, but it's not going to replace us immediately. So I know that there's some lenders that do auto adjudication now where they're using basically an AI underwriter to go, yep, this looks good. And I think that's going to continue as a trend and it's going to reduce the number of humans required in the process and speed up the process, hopefully. So some of these things will be benefit for sure. But yeah. Yeah. I think as a blogger, I think people tell me it's better than you think it would be. And I put a lot of time into writing my blog. So if everybody else can have a blog in 30 seconds by using one of those sites, I don't know, I may have to start doing something else on my Sunday afternoons, but Long story short, Scott, consumers want to talk to humans. There's nothing more frustrating for me than dialing some number and having to sit there listening to voicemail and pushing buttons. And when it comes to getting mortgage advice and people talking you through to the decision, I really do think if all you're doing is quoting rates, then if you you shouldn't even be here now. You should have got killed off five years ago by the rate sites. But if you're giving good advice and asking the right questions and being patient and explaining how things work, I don't think you can automate that. One of the examples that I've pointed to in the past, somebody made this point to me years ago, in the insurance business, the home insurance business, they tried to automate that online and uh, it didn't work. People wanted to talk to an insurance advisor to be taken through the different riders and options for their home insurance policy. And somebody who I know who worked in the insurance industry said that something like 70% of the online applications were abandoned mid-application because people just got too frustrated and they didn't want to fill them out. And that's all insurance. I mean, I think however important it is for people to talk to a live body when it comes to home insurance, I think it's even more so when it comes to mortgage advice. Right. Okay. I got a couple of questions from the folks here. Pat Walker's asking, do you think the foreign buyers ban will lower house prices? His initial thoughts are no, but he'd love your thoughts. I don't think so at all. For one thing, there are so many ways to get around the foreign home buyers ban. If you're a permanent resident, then you know your parents can send your kid here to university and they can have the kid buy. I think I read something a while back and it basically said of all the purchases by foreign buyers in Canada, the ban would affect a tiny percentage of them. That basically there's many ways. So what is it? So if it's going to have such a nominal effect, is it just a political move? Is it just to be like, hey, look, we're doing something. You know, it's like Ralph Wiggum's on, you know, The Simpsons. I'm helping. And he's not, you know, not really helping. Do you think that's what's going on? Sure. Well, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember, I did a blog post on the the Fed's uh, federal government's most recent budget, and they had a whole section on mortgage and housing stuff. And it was all fluff. What's that program they got now where you it's not like an RSP or a TFSA, but you can put money aside for your down payment and It's really no different from the other program. I mean, I don't know. I am very cynical about stuff like this. And I think Scott, absolutely. They said, we don't want to do anything that's really going to hammer the market because we're nervous about unintended. We want to appear to be doing something. It's like we have the appearance of something. That's it. Okay. And Pope has a comment here. Wicked smart person broker as well. But every agent should be doing a detailed material risk analysis that client signs. Do you do any kind of like a, I've seen some of these checklists. You ask some questions. 
like a profile that helps or do you just do this internally or what do you do for determining if somebody should fall into a variable or fixed rate? Well, I take them through a, an extensive list of questions. I don't have a checklist. I don't sort of write it down. So you don't have them. You don't have anything signed, but you basically do take them through a process of, hey, let's let me ask you some questions. Absolutely. Uh, and by the way, I think I should have something signed. I think that would be more robust and more defensible. And I probably have more time to do that now. Over the last couple of years, when we've been crazy busy, I definitely ask a series of questions when I'm speaking to every client to establish their comfort level and to get a sense for whether or not they're better suited to one versus the other. But no, I don't have a checklist, Dan, and I should probably get one. And now's a good time. I've got time. Yeah, I'd be interested to see. We've got something that we've found that, you know, that we're playing with. They haven't rolled it out fully yet, but we're like trying to figure out what that would look like, making sure we identified for the borrower that they're in the right bucket. And, you know, and if they choose to go the other direction, at least you have, hey, you, we said to you, it's like, you said you wanted this, but now you chose that and you've signed off on it. So. I do on my website have a mortgage application. And in that mortgage application, you can see a series of questions that I ask where I ask them to rank. You're actually sort of, you're actually guiding or filtering what's best there. That makes sense. Yeah. So Ann Pope also says uh, your blogs are invaluable, which I totally agree with. I just went, I searched up the one, whatever borrower should know. This is a fantastic post that I think people should go look at when it's like, when it comes to fixed rate penalties. And I love how you actually broke it out and then showed the you know, that's a great way to do it. So any last comments or anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask about? It's always, always, always very informative chat with you. I love our discussions and I always feel, you know, get a little bit smarter than, but it goes away really quick. But anything I should have asked? No, I, I think you got it all, man. Ultimately, this is a different time for us, right? We were crazy busy for two years and now we've got more time. And I think this is a good time to do the kinds of things like Ann's talking about. We take a step back and say, how can I improve my processes? Because we are going to get busy again. And when we do, we want to work on our machine in the meantime and tinker with it and make it better. So the next time we get busy, we're all more professional and servicing the consumer base even better than before. Right. Yeah. Now's the time to retool and you know make things more efficient, fix the parts of your business that you've been neglecting for the last you know 18 months because it's been crazy. And I totally agree with you. And to come on the other side of this with a better business than you had before. So... Thanks, man. Appreciate you. I'll send you over what we have that we're using. You can have a look at that for that whole checklist thing. Yeah, I'd love to take a look. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, man. Have a great one. All right. Hopefully you got a couple ideas from my conversation with Dave. I know I'm always inspired. I feel slightly smarter after talking to him. It doesn't usually stick that long, but I do feel temporarily smarter. In any case, in this next segment, I'm going to be talking to Kevin from KDK about re-amortizing auto loans. And I'm telling you this particular service is exploding right now with people trying to figure out, you know, higher rates and lowering their payments. This is something, an option for people. Check it out. Hey, Kevin, welcome to Ask the Experts. Thanks, Scott. So, hey, man, uh, if you're listening to this, so Kevin owns KDK Financial and they're an auto refinance company that a lot of brokers have been working with. And so I have Kevin on just chatting today. We're going to talk about re-amortizing loans. And so, like, there's a couple of reasons why people would actually want to do this. And one you probably haven't thought of that Kevin has uh, shared with me. And so why don't we jump into it? What's one of the big reasons you see people wanting to re-amortize a loan? Maybe explain what it is, then yeah. why, and then we'll give an example. Awesome. Yeah. So re-amortization, basically what we do is if the client's got, you know, three or four or five years left on the loan, we'll move it back up to, you know, maybe an eight-year loan or a nine-year loan. And the reason that we do that is just to maximize the lowest possible drop to help them with their TDS, to help get the mortgage done. So if you run into ratios that are just a bit too high, it's a really, really good solution 
to maximize a significant drop of the payment. The average savings, I'm going to say, because there's a whole mixed bag, but I'm going to say two to $300 a month is the average. But we've ran into many situations where we've cut the client's payment in half or more. So it really just comes down to each situation. What's the biggest one you can think of? I know you've done a lot of these, but what's the biggest one or one that's come to mind of the biggest change in payment? Uh, $1,500 down to $400 a month. Wow. Yeah. Well, again, imagine you got a client that's looking to buy a place and they got an $800 payment or whatever, or $700, and they can cut it down in half or down to knock 300 bucks off. It can be the difference in this high rate, high qualifying rate environment. And this is probably what you're seeing a ton of. And so on average, it's about 300 bucks a month. So yeah, you run into like that one that I just spoke about from 1500 to four. It was just somebody with good intentions. Like people don't know, right? So he went into a Ford dealership to buy a truck and uh, he's like, oh, I want to do a four-year loan. Good. Yeah good right <laughs> until now i want to buy a house now i want to buy a house and the mortgage broker's like well you know things are a little tight so we didn't have to drop it all the way down to four we just chose to because at the end of the day it doesn't matter he can move it up to six or seven or eight or nine or right when the mortgage is done so we always do the lowest possible payment out of the gate that way they have the flexibility to do whatever they want with it after you can always go up in payment, but you can't go back down. So we always right. got a client to just go as low as possible and change it out. And then you can move the goalposts. You know, you, you've heard this phrase, uh, don't put the cart before the horse, right? In the mortgage business, we say, don't put the car before the house. But so many people do, because they're just like, they walk into a car dealership, like, oh, I want a new car. And then it's like, dang. And next thing you know, we're talking like, oh my goodness, like this car is like, you know, it's awesome that you have it. But in the other way around, most cases, once you already have the house, it's like, it's easy to get the car loan. In most cases, if you have good credit. Like much easier anyway. But if you have the mortgage, if you do it backwards, you're kind of hooped. So it's great that you guys have that. So the first is the reason people to re-amortize would be to lower it to TDS to help qualify. What would be another example of why somebody would want to re-amortize the loan that you've seen your brokers doing? Yeah. So lately it's actually been quite a big uptake. So basically there's going to be situations where you don't need, you know, a re-amortization to get the mortgage done, but you just see an opportunity to save your clients some money. So a lot of renewals we've been doing where clients have contacted their mortgage broker, they're stressed out because their payments have gone up and whatever reason, maybe they got a, you know, a different job and doesn't pay as well or whatever. And there's a lot of people that are in a tough spot. So what we can do is we can just help them out too, give them some breathing room, you know, their mortgage payment might've went up four or $500 a month. So if you can be the broker that reaches out to him and say, hey, listen, we can save you that $400 on your car loan. That's a big piece of our business. And it's a really, really good thing that you can do for your client. And, and they remember it and they'll tell all their friends about it. Right. It gives you another solution. And because uh, I know a lot of mortgage brokers right now, some of them don't even want to answer the phone. I'm in variable rate mortgage. And so I've had like my variable rate has got like my mortgage payments gone through and I'm not locking in because I'm like, I don't believe in it. So and I know a lot of other mortgage brokers feel the same, although you just have to be able to weather, you know, I believe the temporary higher rates. But clients are, some of them are quite stressed. And so you got clients reaching out to you and they're kind of, you know, you'd be like, hey, look, you know what, we can't do with the mortgage, but let's look and see if there's other ways we can lower your payments, help your cash flow. And so I think it's another conversation piece. And some brokers are even using it as a marketing thing too, as well, in terms of instead of waiting for the client to call, you know, panicking about their increased payment, they're actually proactively getting in front of it and saying, hey, let's do a look and see if there's any way we can help your cash flow on a monthly basis. And and then you just suggest it. You just walk them through how it works, explain it. And maybe this touches the next point I want to ask you about it. So I like, okay, great. I get that payment lowered. So let's say the guy who had the $1,500 a month payment went down to 400, but he can really still afford 800 or whatever, or a thousand. How does somebody, if somebody does get one of these done, how do they actually readjust it? Yeah. So it's actually a really easy process and we kind of guide the client on how to do it in their best interest. So a lot of times if they're coming in their first time home buyers or whatever, 
we always tell them to wait a few months after the mortgage is oh, which Yeah, because they have no idea all the little things that they're going to, oh, I need this. I need a new rug. I need other, you know, that's just, there's things that even if they can afford the payments, there's a lot of extra little things you don't think about when you get a house. Yeah. So have a little bit of time in the new house and really get a good feeling on your budget. And, you know, some people don't even think of stuff like home insurance and property tax and stuff like that. Right. So we always want them to wait a little bit, but yeah, once yeah. they figured out and they're on their feet and they're like, okay, I really want my payment to be back up to $600 or $700 or whatever it is. All they have to do is make one quick phone call to the lender. So we use every major lender. So it's going to be TD, RBC, Scotiabank, CIBC, whoever the lender is, they all do it. Just call them and say, hey, going forward, I want my payments to be $700 a month. The bank will make the adjustment and all that'll happen is instead of having, you know, a seven-year term, they'll have a five and a half year term, whatever the math equates to and mission accomplished. So you can always go up in payment. You can't go down. So that's why we always start with the lowest. And then once the mortgage is closed, they can kind of adjust it accordingly. And it literally takes five minutes to do that. Right, right. And okay, I'm not suggesting people do this, but can then somebody once, if they go from like, let's say they're at a seven, they go to five. Can they go back to seven or would the bank be like, stop? Like, how does that work? And so, I'm going to ask because I know somebody's got like somebody listening is going to have one of those clients and be like, lower the payment, raise the payment, lower the payment. Like, so is it possible or like, does we want to advise no, them properly? No, you can't lower it again, at least not easily. So you can right. raise payments at any time. You just call in and make the switch. But if you get into a situation where you feel like you made a mistake, <laughs> you, yeah, you're, you're like, oh gosh, what was I thinking? Yeah. They can call me and we could do another refinance at no cost to them and drop it again. The only problem with that, well, it's not really a problem, but you have to wait seven months before you can do a new refinance. So it's just yeah. something that you have to just wait a little bit. But yeah, we can easily do that as well. And it costs nothing to do, right? So if they're stuck, we can definitely help them out if they made a mistake. But try to, you know, keep the payment as low as possible and never push it to a point where you're uh, what they call car poor. Always make sure you got some breathing room there. And, and that's how we guide the clients. Right, right. Okay. So, and then what do you guys pay when brokers send you clients? Because I think that something people be aware of, we, we should probably touch on is that like, it's awesome that you do this. We also can make a little bit of money too. Yeah, that we, work? we've got some brokers that are making $5,000 a month. Like we've got ones that just push it and push it and push it. So it's really the income's as hard as you want to work on it. We pay $500 for every deal over $30,000, which is the majority of the car loans are all over 30 grand pretty much. If it is under 30, you get $250. So you mean if you knock out, you know, five deals a month, there's $2,500 in your pocket, right? So there's right. high volume brokers out there that just push it. They present it on pretty much every file and they're making good income doing it. Right. Interesting. Okay. So if you guys are listening to this, you want to reach out to Kevin and his team. They work with mortgage brokers all the time. You guys are basically designed specifically to work with brokers. You're from the car business, but you've now moved into basically going, Hey, sending people into car dealerships and to the bank to get, this doesn't make any sense. There's gotta be a better experience. So you can email Kevin at uh, kdkfinancial.com and can get hooked up with these guys. I can tell you a lot of brokers are using them. And just these are two perfect examples. Lower the TDS so you can, you know, lower the payment so you can get a lower TDS to qualify. Or you just have a client who wants to lower their monthly cash payments and you can't do anything with the mortgage necessarily, but you can lower payments for them and know that it's not permanent. So any of these adjustments that they make, as long as they make it as low as possible. They can always make it bigger and shorten that loan if they choose. So I think that's fantastic, man. So thanks again for coming on chat with me, Kevin. Awesome, man. Thanks again.
All right. Thanks again for listening to this episode with myself and Dave, as well as Kevin. And last thing for you is if you're listening to this, I'd recommend you go to islandmortgagebrokering.com. You can check out our free power search tool. You can keyword search all of our past episodes. If you're looking for tips or tricks or anything, and it literally will jump you right to the exact episode. The only key to this is you have to make the screen full size. Otherwise, you can't see the search results very well. So that's the little trick for you if you go and check that out. It's totally free. Check it out. And thanks again. I'll be seeing you in the next episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.